listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What makes a person a citizen? What if you move to the United States and are loyal to your new country? But what if your new home is in a part of that country that secedes? And what if you are a woman and your husband is a rebel? We'll look at a range of topics today, including the tangled question of a British Confederate widow's citizenship with Professor Robert Tenzer of the University of Richmond, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, from my office in the Brewster Building, looking out over 10th Street and the tree-surrounded field where the marching band practices when the weather gets a little cooler in the fall. Uh, But not speaking on behalf of the university, as always, speaking only for myself, Yet using the university's resource in the form of the telephone, we've been urged to watch our telephone bills, watch every possible form of consumable expense here in the budget crisis year of 2009, and we're doing our best uh, to do that. In addition to the legal notice that we start with, uh, and speaking of budget crises, feel free as always to contribute to the show donations of $20 or more to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, We'll get you a copy as a thank you gift of Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment, two books signed, if you wish, uh, by the author. That would be me. Uh, And also along with with those donations, which you can send to the PayPal address of CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Also, you're welcome to uh, search me up on the ECU website or the CWTR.org website and send an email with suggestions for future topics for shows, guests you'd like to hear from. They're always welcome. And one more news item. It's your last chance here, the last show in May 2009, to take advantage of the offer from Civil War Times Magazine. They are giving listeners to this program a special Deal good till the end of this month only if you call them on their toll-free number, 800-435-0715, and mention promotion code G9EWTR, you will get a chance to subscribe to Civil War Times magazine for 
1865, the year the war ended, $18.65, less than the regular rate by a substantial amount, as I understand. Well, those who were listening last week heard uh, a program dedicated to the memory of David Herbert Donald, the great Lincoln biographer and scholar of the Civil War and and pre-war and Reconstruction eras. Uh, I want to thank those of you who uh, wrote in with some very nice uh, comments about that show. It was uh, somewhat experimental and extemporaneous uh, to talk about my uh, former mentor for the the hour that we had available, and I appreciate those who uh, responded with their, their comments. I mentioned the show to uh, various other historians, and I got a, a uh, nice note from John Marzalek, uh, who many of you will know for his biography of uh, William Sherman, uh, as well as his other work. He's also been a guest on this program. And John shared with me his own uh, memory of David Donald when uh, he was a student. Uh, John was uh, uh, a student at Notre Dame uh, for his graduate work, uh, and Vincent DeSantis was his uh, graduate mentor there, who was a longtime friend of, of Dr. Donald, and John wrote to me some stories. He one time had the experience of being in a graduate uh, seminar when uh, when David Donald came to campus to speak, and Dr. DeSantis uh, told John, uh, even though you're not in the the seminar we're doing right now, could you come and do a presentation on Sherman for us? Uh, since no one else in the seminar is doing a Civil War topic. So uh, John wrote to me about having 24 hours to prepare a presentation before the, the great David Donald the first time he met him. And it was quite a, uh, a in- intimidating experience. As Actually, most experiences one has as a graduate student tend to be intimidating, but that certainly was one. And he, uh, uh, John wrote that he, he made it through. Uh, he left out a few important points that uh, uh, that David was able to uh, bring up in his critique afterwards in his very soft, uh, courtly Mississippi voice. Uh, but that afterwards, uh, years later, um, both in the same year actually studying at the, researching at the Library of Congress, uh, John Marsluck ran into David Donald again, who of course remembered him and asked him uh, to... Uh, uh, send him any nuggets about uh, Charles Sumner while you're at it, as David was always looking, uh, uh, employing many people as research assistants in that fashion. And history is a collaborative enterprise. We all help one another out with, with nuggets of information when we find them. And uh, it was not until decades later, 1993, that uh, John, in the end of his message to me, says he saw David Donald uh, uh, the next time, and uh, mentioned this the the graduate student seminar incident of, of decades earlier, and of course David Donald remembered it and said, "I see you've survived and are doing well." And uh, many of, of of Donald's students uh, everywhere today, hopefully, are are doing well in their various endeavors. I told a, a few of my own stories last week, and uh, time ran short, so if uh, listeners, if you'll indulge me, I will add one more before we get to today's guest. Uh, I described uh, uh, last week the experience of doing a research assignment 
and doing it incorrectly and, and being uh, 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 being told that I had done it incorrectly. That experience stayed with me uh, so that when I saw uh, Ted Turner's movie about Gettysburg, which I'm venturing to guess everybody listening to the show has seen probably more than once, uh, when I saw that movie, I became one of the few people who was a real fan of Martin Sheen's interpretation of Robert E. Lee, uh, particularly for the moment when uh, Stewart shows up at Lee's headquarters on July 2nd, 1863, having gallivanted across Pennsylvania and brought the cavalry in late and, and left Lee in the traditional interpretation uh, without reconnaissance and unable to know what he was running into. So the whole Battle of Gettysburg is really Stuart's fault in, in the in the don't blame Lee for anything interpretation. And the uh, the moment in the movie is portrayed with uh, Sheen as Lee saying to Stuart simply in a very quiet uh, southern voice, well, General Stuart, I see you are here. Uh, and that's all there is. There's no scenery chewing. There's no frothing tantrum. Lee doesn't yell at Stuart. Stuart goes away. Uh, and he knows that he has just been taken to the woodshed. That's how Lee got his point across. And I understood that moment uh, viscerally because it reminded me so much of Dr. Donald saying to me, well, Jerry, this isn't quite what I had in mind. Uh, that's all you needed to know that you were in trouble. You had not done it as the master wanted, and you'd better fix it next time. So I thought Sheen hit it just right, but most critics uh, didn't like it. Uh, that's because they never got chewed out in the same way by David Herbert Donald. Lest I leave the impression, finally, before we uh, move on, that uh, all my interactions involved uh, this sort of uh, negative experience or, or uh, critical experience, I will say that graduate school was not all intimidating, and uh, by the time I was about done, I can recall having a very interesting conversation uh, with David Donald on the subject of the Memorial Chapel on the campus of Harvard University. If you're ever around Cambridge, it's worth your time to stop in, take a look, and see the stones uh, inside carved with the names of Harvard graduates who died in the Civil War, and you'll see familiar names uh, uh, like Shaw, the, the 54th Massachusetts, and others, uh, as well as unfamiliar names, but many names of these Harvard men who fought for the Union, uh, for whom the chapel was dedicated. One day in, uh, I guess, the late 80s, early 1990s, there was a controversy on campus as to whether there ought to also be added to Memorial Chapel the names of Harvard students who died fighting for the Confederacy. There were not many, but some. Uh, wealthy Southern families sent their, their sons to Harvard or Yale. Uh, often uh, in those days, there being no Southern colleges beyond uh, universities, at least beyond, uh, uh, of course, Virginia and, and Chapel Hill. Uh, certainly none of the rank of Harvard or Yale. So there were Southerners who attended. And the question had come up, should there not be some sort of uh, recognition of them? I thought the answer was no, and continue to think that. Um, it seems to me that the chapel was built to commemorate certain people for a certain cause, not simply for their bravery as a, you know, an atavistic, uh, independent, context-free emotion or uh, 
virtue, but but because they fought for the Union, and adding Confederate soldiers would would make Harvard the focus of the the Memorial Chapel, not the Union. And thus, I thought it was not appropriate. Uh, Professor Donald thought otherwise, and he, he thought time had passed, and it was appropriate to add those names. And we had a discussion of this, and it was uh, a moment when I realized, well, this is this is what this is about. This kind of intellectual process we're here. You don't have to agree on everything. You can disagree and argue, and uh, uh, your your mentor doesn't have to be right on everything. And uh, I still maintain that 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 I, I think the right decision is not to add those names. Uh, but it was uh, it was a moment of growth and one that I, I cherish remembering uh, the, the very interesting and stimulating discussion we had on that topic. So with that, I will close my thoughts on, on last week's topic, the life and career of David Herbert Donald. Uh, he did... Uh, always sign his letters as he did the first letter I described last week when I was admitted to graduate school, the very formal, precise, printed handwriting, David Herbert Donald, until after one got one's degree and, and, and became uh, a similarly credentialed historian, if not of the same rank, when he began signing his letters to me, just David. And while I never mastered the ability to just call him David in conversation, uh, uh, I, I guess I won't do so now. I'll remember him as Professor Donald, and, uh, and leave it at that. And move on now to uh, our guest today, whose, whose time I've taken, and he's waited patiently, uh, uh, from the University of Richmond, uh, historian Robert Kenzer. Bob, are you there? Yes, I am. Nice to talk to you, Jerry. It's been about a month. It has been a month, and it was Yes, it was it's on... been, a, been a very tough month the last uh, week or so, of course, with uh, Dr. Donald's death. Um, I did listen to your broadcast from last week, and uh, I thought, since I was a Dr. Donald student as well, I would, uh, just for the listeners, say, confirm so many of the things you said about Dr. Donald. Um, I, like you, received that letter very similar before I started my doctoral program at Harvard with him, where he talked about summer reading, as you noted, and um, I remember that letter very well. I was, uh, I think, a little younger than you were. I started, I had just finished my BA, where I know you did a law degree later and were a lawyer, but I was a 21-year-old. Uh, uh, the intimidation factor in, was high. It was 1976, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, it was quite an intimidating. I had literally never been on an airplane until I flew to Boston to start graduate school. And, uh, and I had got married the, that week before, I was with my new bride, my wife, Carol, and uh, it was quite an experience for me, not just learning a, a new part of the country, a, a new university, but learning about a new person who was very important in shaping my, my career. And I remember the very first time I met him, and you, you note his courtly demeanor, and nothing, I think, could dis, uh, can describe him more accurately than that uh, he had that bow as you well know. Yes. yes. And uh, I remember he invited me to, uh, I had just arrived at Harvard, and he invited me for lunch at the faculty club at Harvard, and that was intimidating enough, but first meeting him and having that bow, uh, being a Westerner growing up in the West, it kind of surprised me quite a bit. (laughs) 
Um, one other thing I may add about Dr. Donald, yeah, which please. I'm sure other students of his would uh, say as well, is he had this uh, very rare ability um, uh, that he could make you feel like you were the most important person in the world when you were talking to him. Um, I, I know that wasn't the case in my case, <laughs> for sure, but he had that ability both when he was talking to you directly, you could be in a room with a hundred other people, uh, or it could be in his writing when he was writing you a letter, and he just made you feel very important. And uh, that, and, and this continued not just when I was a graduate student of his, but later on in my career, later on in my life, uh, he, he had that ability, which I know very effective people do have, particularly people in politics, who they can make you feel very important, even though you really know you're not. Uh, and so I'm sure you've had that experience as well. Yeah, that's a great observation. That, that really is true. It, it, the way politicians remember people's names is mm-hmm. the start of that. But yeah, yeah Dr. Donald, and, and would, would, I would add as well, his kindness was not only extended to his students, uh, but in my case as well to my wife. Uh, mm-hmm. She was very, uh, when I got the news about his death, she was very saddened because he had been a very important part of her life as well in shaping my career, but also he always treated her that same way, that she was in a sense as important as I was, which it was true, of course. Uh, but, um, uh, and he, I mean, he, when he did talk to me, he, the, one of the first questions they always asked was, how was my wife doing? Again, we had started at Harvard together since we had just gotten married, and so... Yeah. The other thing I might say about, uh, in, I don't remember how old you are, Jerry. I think you and I are fairly close. You're in your 50s, right? That's right. Just turned 50, actually. Okay. Well, I'm 54, and what strikes me so much, of course, is that when I started at Harvard, Donald was 56. And you'll maybe, of course, he, he was so much further into his career when you had him towards the end, but it's striking for someone like me who uh, knew him at, of course, others knew him much younger as well, but that I'm now almost to the age that he was when I first met him as well. So, um, that is, that, that's, uh, <laughs> Do you get that feeling when you read about Civil War generals? Uh, you know, right. Oh, yes, who died when they were 39 or, or something. And the same thing is true of Lincoln, of course, too. I'm getting to the point where I'm, uh, let me see, I'm uh, almost the age that Lincoln was. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, as you know, I teach a course here at the University of Richmond on Lincoln, in fact, uh, one of the last conversations I had with uh, Dr. Donald, I always still call him Dr. Donald. I did exactly. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. One of the last uh, extensive letters we actually exchanged uh, had to do with um, that I was going to teach a course on Lincoln, and this was uh, a few years ago now. And, it, um, and I've now taught this course for two to three years. And I must tell you, I have the same problem that you mentioned in your uh, show last week, and I particularly have it, is that I interchange, because I also use the Donald book for the class, I interchange them, I'll be talking about Lincoln, and I'll say Donald. (laughs) 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 I'm sure others of his students probably do the same thing. He did so much more than Donald. Uh, Donald did so much more uh, than Lincoln. So That's true. Yeah, I, I thought you might want me to well, talk a little about the Lincoln course, or you have to go to a break now. We're going to go to a break right now. We'll come sure. back and talk about the Lincoln course. We'll be Great. back with Bob Kenzer in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 
Talk Radio Variety Channel. how many people have that name. We'll find out more about Lincoln and how to teach about him from our guest Robert Kenzer when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant... He was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robert Kenzer, professor at the University of Richmond, an expert on Abraham Lincoln, among other Civil War era topics. We've been talking in our first section. I perhaps did more of the talking than I ought, but uh, recapitulating some of last week's show on uh, David Herbert Donald, the great historian who passed away in May 2009, who was my graduate mentor and also that of our guest today, Bob Kenzer. And we were just sharing some stories uh, about David Donald, who we uh, both uh, were inspired by uh, for, for many years at Harvard University and in our careers afterwards trying to live up to the standard that Dr. Donald set for us. Um, right. Well, I, uh, yeah, I was, go ahead, Bob. I, when, we, when, when we went to the break, I was talking to you. Uh, when I uh, last, in, a, in an extended way, had a conversation with him, which was the mail, I... Uh, was designing this course on Lincoln that I teach at the University of Richmond. I've now taught for two years, and as I, t- I told him at the time, I, it was very strange or funny for me to be teaching a course on Lincoln because I really, you were too kind a second ago, I'm really not a, a Lincoln scholar, though when one works with David Donald, uh, you obviously learn a lot about Lincoln, and of course I taught many years about the Civil War. Uh, but the reason I was teaching or designing this course on Lincoln was... Um, it's actually an interesting course, not well, it's an interesting course because it's primarily taught to non history majors at Richmond. All uh University of Richmond students have to take a what we call a historical studies course and we used to offer many surveys of American history or Western Civ, but we moved to more specialized courses where we could talk and bring in primary sources um, that we had familiarity with. 
so I don't have to talk about the Holly Smooth tariff or something like I used to do in the American History Survey. Um, so I told him at the time that it was strange for me now to be turning to Lincoln, but I thought Lincoln uh, would be an excellent topic for this course and that it would attract students. And, of course, I had in mind that the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth was coming up. So I did design this course, and I should say before I designed it, I uh, wrote to a number of uh, historians who I thought might teach courses on Lincoln, and there weren't very many. Uh, What's interesting is that two of the people I wrote who did teach courses on Lincoln were Phil Paladin and John Y. Simon, and unfortunately they died uh, since then. I don't know if teaching a course on Lincoln is a safe thing to do, Um, but there were others. And um, But most of them, as I say, taught the course as an upper division history course or as a graduate course, where, again, most of the students in my course are, are not majors. This is the only course they'll have, uh, likely, in history. They may be a business major or a biology major or whatever. So, again, the purpose behind the course is not just to have them learn everything they'll ever want to know about Lincoln, though that, of course, inevitably happens, but to learn very much about the nature of historical inquiry and um, Lincoln is ideal for that because, as you well know and you noted the, in your t- uh, last week, so much of his Lincoln's letters, so much of the primary sources by which scholars know about Lincoln are online. So my students are able uh, to go to the collected works at the University of Michigan and the uh, Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress, uh, the official records of the war with the rebellion online, uh, in fact, for their um, term paper, they take a week of the presidency. Each student takes a different week, and they're basically required to read every primary source of that week and try to put that week in context. So um, That's a fascinating exercise. How does that work for them? How do they do on that? They do very well on it, actually. I, uh, it's been, for me, the most enjoyable part of the course, I think, for them as well. Um, I give them a guideline of, of course, a student who's written a paper like that already because it's so different for them. Uh, and uh, they're fortunate, you know, there's a, an online website, uh, uh, Lincoln Day by Day, which was derived from the book, which came out, I guess, in the 1950s, I guess it was, Lincoln Day by Day, which chronicles his entire adult life, at least, uh, day by day. And uh, there's a website uh, at uh, uh, in Springfield, Illinois, um, from the Lincoln Papers there, where they run their website now for a while. It was at Brown University, but it's in Springfield. And they're updating it, actually, by incorporating the new letters that are being found. And uh, also, w- the nice thing about this website is it provides links, direct links from the particular date to the collected works or the papers at the Library of Congress, or they'll refer to, for example, the Gideon Wells Diary or the John Hay uh, or other uh, diaries as well. Bates Diary is what I was thinking of. Um, so the students like it because every paper, for me, is a different paper. They have their own identity, and they can pick a time in the war that, uh, that maybe was, you know, say around the Battle of Gettysburg, obviously an exceptional time, or they pick a more typical time, usually uh, during the downtime of the war in the winter, and they'll find things about Lincoln that very much relate to the war, obviously, but then other things about Lincoln that have nothing to do with the war whatsoever. He might be appointing somebody ambassador or writing to the um, king of Sweden or something, or uh, it might simply be someone from Springfield was visiting him in the White House. Uh, so they sort of contextualize that week in terms of having read Donald's book on 
Lincoln, at, you know, the major events of Lincoln's presidency, but also they have to come to grips with the fact that a lot of things Lincoln did didn't relate to his presidency at all. So it's it's worked out very nicely. That, that seems like a you know a promising approach. There are people who've written books, of course, on that that uh, uh, approach where you take a single day or week or month and. Right there's a book, Civil War, um, where he takes um, the civil. He takes. I'm sorry, I can't. I've used that book as well, uh, where he takes a week of the Civil War, or it's a day of the Civil War. Yes, one day of the Civil. Willett, Robert Willett, his book. Yes, mm-hmm. I've used that in my Civil War class as well. I've had my students uh, take a week of uh, a day of the uh, Civil War and look at all the official records and whatever. Yeah, and this well, this is a little more united since it's tied around Lincoln himself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and otherwise, what they do for the class as well is they read uh, some articles from the Journal of Abraham Lincoln Association, and they write some uh, paper using uh, talking about the scholarly articles and how the authors use primary sources. And uh, I must tell you, by the way, they we, they read uh, uh, Gabor Barrett's Lincoln Enigma, and they very much like your article in there, your chapter on if Lincoln had literally become the military commander he complained after he complained to uh, General Meade after Gettysburg and you written that excellent piece about what Lincoln would have been like as a military commander. Uh, it would be an interesting question <laughs> if he had done that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I've taught the course now for uh, two years and uh, I'm hoping to find more people who uh, actually uh, might be out there who, who do something similar. If they do a class on Lincoln, maybe we can at a conference or something, give, uh, give a talk about it since with the 200th anniversary. So, I, I might well, also let me ask add you a question that. about that, if I could. Though uh, sure. you're at the University of Richmond, you're in the right. capital of the Confederacy. Uh, how do the students respond to Lincoln as a, as a figure? Um, well, you should understand, and I had to come to grips with this uh, when I arrived here in 1993. Uh, my university uh, is probably the most northern southern college, or the most southern northern college. Uh, all our students overwhelmingly come from the I-95 corridor all the way up to Boston, and so only about one in five of our students, I believe, are Virginians, and many of them, of course, come from Northern Virginia. Um, and we don't we don't draw that heavily from the South, uh, and even those who, students who take the South uh, class who are Southerners, they. They don't, you know, they're of a different generation, if you will, and, and they're not troubled. I could just as well teach the course, by the way, on Jefferson Davis. It doesn't really matter that it's on Lincoln. It's just the material on Lincoln is so much more accessible for them since it's online. Um, and I must say that's true. I, I teach um, two other Civil War-related courses. I teach the, what I call my conventional Civil War course, which covers from 1845 to through Reconstruction, and then I teach a course called Civil War and Film and Literature. And most of the students who take my courses, um, there's the, the regional bias isn't there. If anything, what I found interesting over time is the students who are from the north are much more interested in hearing the southern side of the war uh, than uh, anything. I didn't necessarily anticipate that before I came here. They So when they get to pick a book that they, usually in my class I let the students all pick a book that they want to read, uh, they want to read on a on a southern general, not a northern general, or they want to read about a southern um, uh, a southern. Uh, often in my class uh, for my Civil War course, they take a they take a, like I say a day of the war, and they want to take the southern that, that day for the south rather than for the north. So 
I don't really run into problems with that at Richmond, but that you know might be unique to this university. I don't know if it would be like that if I taught at UVA or William and Mary, for example. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm teaching uh, a summer course, a civil what you call a conventional civil war course, mm-hmm. uh, right right now, and we just we're selecting books uh, the same way you have your students select books. And the first three students today showed me their selections, and uh, like yours, they they all have southern. Topics, but these students are all Southern, so uh, maybe it's right. universal. The North wants to learn about the South, <laughs> and the South wants to learn about the South. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the regard to the Lincoln course, this might be a good uh, movement into my work I'm doing. Actually, I'm Lincoln. As I say, I'm not a I'm not a Lincoln scholar. I don't even play a Lincoln scholar at the university, but um, because I I was working on Lincoln, I uh, sort of backed into a a project, uh, as you noted earlier, uh, about uh, Americans naming. And not just Americans, but people around the world uh, being named after Lincoln in honor of Lincoln. And uh, this came at a very appropriate time. Uh, my university had just bought a subscription, as many universities do, to the Ancestry Library Edition, which is this genealogical database where they put the manuscript census online. And so for fun, I, um, uh, I just put in the name Lincoln as a first name and wanted to see how common that was. Uh, before the Civil War, and then what the impact of the war was. And it was particularly fun because my son by that point was a teenager, and he and I worked on this a little together. He's now 17. Um, anyway, the um, uh, what was amazing to me, some of the most interesting things I found, was that Lincoln was a very uncommon first name. Um, almost half the men, if I remember, who had the name Lincoln, then there were only an 18... 50, about 310 in the entire country. Uh, uh, They almost all lived in Maine. Uh, It was a New Englandish name. Um, There is a town in Maine called Lincoln. Right, right, and and, and it may be from that area. Well, what's interesting is one would not be surprised that there would be a lot more children named Lincoln after Lincoln became president, but what surprised me, and the census is very good for showing this because I can take the year 1860 and then I can take the age of the child. So if I have a one- or two-year-old, that means they've been born in 1858, 1859, or maybe early 1860. Anyway, between 1850 and 1860, the number of Lincolns as a first name doubled. Um, and particularly there was a big increase in 1858, late 58, 59, and early 60. Uh, and in other words, these were not children being named Lincoln who were born in 51, 52, 53. In other words, clearly the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and also it's confirmed because most of them live in the Midwest. Most of them live in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. So, so they've suggest- heard of Abraham Lincoln. Right. He, he became, because of the debates with uh, Douglas, a, I won't say a household name, but more well-known. And then, of course, during the war, there's a tremendous increase of naming children. Uh, by 1870, where there had been 600 uh, boys with the first name Lincoln in 1860, uh, by 1870 there were 5,000. It had gone up 800%. And if you compare this to any other names, common names like William or George or James, there's no even any comparison whatsoever. I may add, by the way, that I actually looked in the British census as well, the English census, and there was a comparable increase in England as well. It went up 700% during the war that people in England were naming, not vastly the equal numbers, I don't mean that, but that the change of went from 21 boys named Lincoln to 148 uh, in 10 years. So as part of this uh, study, what uh, I did, and my son, again, helped me on this, is 
uh, we trace these uh, over time up to 1930, actually, because that's the last year that we can look at the, since there's a 70-year privacy period on the manuscript census, we won't be able to look at the 1940 until next year. Uh, but we trace uh, the number of children who are named Lincoln, and many who are named Abraham Lincoln and then their surname uh, as well. It's not just Lincoln as a first name, but Abraham Lincoln as a first and middle name. And we compare uh, white children and black children. We also compare, of course, region. Not surprisingly, uh, Lincoln was not a very common name for a white child in the South, unless he lived in Kentucky or in the border states. But South Carolina is by far the lowest. And as you might expect, as you move to the Midwest, it gets much higher. And then the far west, especially Oregon, actually had, as a per capita births, uh, the highest number of children named Lincoln. Now, I recall at the, the late lamented Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, one of the exhibits we built there was a map of the United States with a dot for every uh, right. a little LED light for every mm-hmm. uh, uh, town or county or named, for, named Lincoln or uh, a Lincoln statue. And as right. you point out, South Carolina had very few. It did have some, but they were named for Benjamin Lincoln, the right. revolutionary. Right, Benjamin Lincoln, hero. yeah. My, my point you can't is really sort that out, can you? A lot of historians, most notably Merrill Peterson and the sociologist Barry Schwartz, have written on Lincoln in American memory, and they talk a lot about uh, towns and uh, counties especially that were named after Lincoln. But in some ways, I think naming a child after Abraham Lincoln uh, is a much more personal investment uh, 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 you know, the name you give your own child, obviously you hope it will be a name that will be of assistance to them in life. And uh, so, and so, of course, a town is important, too. I don't want to diminish towns like Lincoln, Nebraska, and other places. Um, but it's interesting, uh, for example, immigrants who name their children uh, Lincoln in part, perhaps because it's part of the acculturation process. And, of course, for African-Americans, it's meaningful as well. By the way, a lot of African Americans uh, by 1870, about 300, took the name Lincoln as their last name. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, the naming convention. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, African Americans had last names within their their communities, but their owners, you know, applied first names to them that they they used. Right. But uh-huh. they, they essentially had the opportunity to name themselves at the end of slavery. At right. At the end of slavery, they of course take they take family names or last names, and uh, as I say, about 300 do. And, of course, it's interesting because, of course, they're overwhelmingly in the Deep South. So where whites in the Deep South aren't naming themselves Lincoln by any means, or the children Lincoln, uh, African-Americans are. But I must tell you, I find interesting I have Eskimos <laughs> who have the name Lincoln um, uh, from everywhere, literally, uh, in the country, though some areas more so. I do analysis uh, by uh, wealth as well to see if they, and professions, to see if fathers of lawyers um, uh, fathers who were lawyers named their children. You need to go to your break, don't you? We, we do, so we're going to take another short Great. break here. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, Robert Kenzer, the University of Richmond, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. If you're 
British, but you move to America to become American, but your state moves out of America to become Confederate, but your husband is a rebel, but then he dies, then, well, where is your citizenship? We'll explore a tangled case when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. My son. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Bob Kenzer, professor of history at the University of Richmond. We've been talking about our mentor and friend, David Donald, in our first section. Uh, the great uh, American historian, David Donald, passed away in May 2009, a few weeks ago, and Bob and I have been reminiscing about our experiences as uh, graduate students under his instruction at Harvard. And we've been talking about uh, the subject both of us learned uh, there, uh, Abraham Lincoln, and the experience of teaching Lincoln in the second section, uh, teaching a course dedicated simply to Abraham Lincoln. And uh, our conversation has meandered to the subject of people named after Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, Bob, it's a, a fascinating study that you've done of people named for Lincoln. You mentioned... Uh, how this varies across uh, race, uh, more African-Americans by percentage than European-Americans choose or, or chose the name Lincoln for their sons in the, the period for which we had the records up to 1930. Right. And uh, you also said by region, I presume the, the states of the Confederacy saw yeah. fewer white children named Lincoln than uh, would be true in the North. Oh, yes. I, I, I compare the, the, the original seven states of the Confederacy uh, to the rest of the southern states, and then to the states that don't leave the Union, like Kentucky. And there's clearly a relationship. The further south, is, for whites, is very unlikely to name a child Lincoln. And then as you move north, and particularly as you move into Appalachia, more uh, likely so. What's interesting, I, there are strange anomalies, too. I have a, a very funny story that my, my son and I dug up of a family in Arkansas. I think they're called the Chaffee family. And they, they had twin boys, African-American family. Uh, they had twin boys, and they named one 
Abraham Lincoln and one Jefferson Davis. We think they were hedging their bets (laughs) because the children were born in 64. So uh, that leads to interesting questions about when these two boys got in fights and things. But generally, um, by 1870, uh, it's the African Americans who, of course, are living in the South, and particularly in the Deep South, who are naming their children, not surprisingly, after the 16th president. And uh, but then whites uh, in the uh, outside of the South, in the Upper South, but outside of the South. Uh, but I don't want the people to misunderstand. We're not talking in that hundreds of thousands of Americans were naming their son Abraham Lincoln uh, as, in, instead of calling them William or George or Robert or whatever. It's just the increase is so marked and it is so related to his presidency. It kind of levels off after, uh, after 1870. Uh, it doesn't grow particularly, except there is another spurt, uh, surprisingly uh, kind of a rebirth, and that was at the centennial in 1909. Uh, we can actually... M- Trace, there is a, an increase again. Lincoln was on the minds of, of parents, I guess. Uh, and so we have uh, people naming their children after Lincoln again. And, but then it falls off uh, after that. And uh, again, we can only go up to 1930 because of the using the census. So it's just a different way of looking, uh, in a sense, about the role of Lincoln memory. Uh, maybe a, too statistical for some, but otherwise it's a, as I say, I think I find it a very personal way that people, in a sense, uh, uh, commemorate the president. And I remember reading in Simon Cameron's papers, mm-hmm. uh, doing this actually as part of the, the Lincoln biography research, right. uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Donald had me right. reading uh, the, the Cameron papers on microfilm, and there was a letter to Cameron, uh, who was, of course, the Secretary of War in 1861 62, uh, and the letter said, uh, you know, dear uh, Mr. Cameron, I've just had three boys, and Ooh. I want to give them appropriate names to commemorate, uh, you know, the Union and the war effort. And Cameron very modestly suggested, well, you could name one of them uh, Abraham Lincoln Johnson. I don't remember if the name was Johnson. Right. Uh, right. And you could name one Gideon Wells Johnson, <laughs> Simon Cameron Johnson. <laughs> well, I came across a very similar letter, actually. Um, uh, which had been cited before by uh, Donald Fehrenbacher, the uh, prominent uh, Civil War scholar. And uh, he cites us in an article about a fellow, uh, John Tudor, who lived in Indiana. This is just a very common man who wrote to President Lincoln uh, in 1861 uh, and noted that his son had just been born, and he named him Abraham Lincoln Tudor. He had named his first son George Washington Tudor. And uh, Fehrenbacher notes that uh, Tudor uh, may well have been the first person to place Lincoln besides Washington in the National Pantheon. Um, I must say, by the way, that Abraham Lincoln Tudor never, I've traced him over time, he, he never, like most of the people named after Abraham Lincoln, uh, never did anything prominent. Uh, I think the uh, uh, probably the most famous person named after Lincoln actually was Lincoln Steffens. But I've never been able to confirm, actually, that Lincoln Steffens was named in honor of Abraham Lincoln, though the timing does make sense. And then, of course, you even have up to today with Lincoln Chaffee, the former senator uh, from Rhode Island. I think he's named after him, but I'm not sure. But given his family's very strong Republican heritage, I suspect that was the case. It would be very interesting. uh, Yes, I'm sorry. There there was a federal judge, of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln Merovitz. Merovitz, and I know him as well. Yes, he's, of course, the very famous story of these uh, Jewish-Lithuanian family 
and he was he was of course a very famous collector of Lincoln memorabilia, and he tells the story. Well, why why did your family from Lithuania name you after Lincoln? And he said, well, given their uh, fact that they were Jewish, they thought that Lincoln was Jewish. And people would say, what do you mean? They said, well, all they knew about Lincoln was that he was shot in the temple. Uh. <laughs> it's a terrible story, but uh, Merovich used to say it as well. So anyway, it's been a fun fun uh, work, and I'm hoping to get it published. This would be a good year for it with the with the uh, bicentennial. Yeah, so, it would be interesting. There was a, a football player named Lincoln Kennedy. Uh, oh, I don't know that name at all. So was, he, uh, where did he play? In college football, you mean? Yeah, he, uh, I'm trying to remember what his story was. Um, mm-hmm. Let me see. He... White or African American? Uh, I'm guessing African American. Okay. He, 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 I'll use the miracle of the internet here. Uh, right. he was drafted ninth in 1993 by the oh. Falcons in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I could look. There are ways to get in from people's naming patterns, and that is when people die and they their Social Security. Uh, button thing is filed, and then you can figure out what year they were born. But the new census, uh, well, not the new census, but the 1940 census, when it comes out, it'll be helpful. But by that time, I think people are naming people after Franklin Roosevelt, uh, more so than Abraham Lincoln. So, um, otherwise, so, um, you had Lincoln mentioned that... Ultimately, ultimately yeah. he was a Pro Bowl player. He was, he was a oh, is he? Okay, I'll have to look him up as well, then. Give him his credit there. He's an announcer on... Uh, Oh, now and shows up on ESPN occasionally. Oh, you had tempted your listeners about the issue of the the naming of uh, someone else, Elizabeth Louisa Harris. Yes. Uh, so I think I better we got to just about. We better talk about that. Okay, uh, good. Talk fast. Tell us the story of this woman. Uh, yeah. Is she a this British is, citizen? A can, yeah, yeah. Um, this is citizen? a woman who I came across. I was doing a trying to write a book on Southern women, wives of Confederate men who died in the war, and to do a collective study of them. And I ended up writing a, a nice article on this for, by a in a book that Joan Cash in Ohio State, another Donald student, edited. Uh, but um, this, I came across this woman in particular. Uh, her papers are at Duke University in the archives. It's an enormous collection, one of the largest collections of a woman. Anyway, Elizabeth Louisa Harris uh, was born Elizabeth Louisa Knights in uh, England, in uh, East Anglia, in 1825. And uh, her family moved to London. And there's nothing particularly prominent about them one way or the other until uh, 1849. She married a Virginian, uh, David Bullock Harris. Uh, he was from Goochland County, which is just west of Richmond. And he was very involved in tobacco exporting from Virginia. And he had gone to England because, of course, that's where a lot of tobacco was exported. He wanted to learn more about the market. He met this woman, Elizabeth Louisa Harris, this British woman. And she came, they got married, a whirlwind romance. And then they came and they moved here back to Goochland in, uh, in 1850. And they had nine children in one decade. And they had a set of triplet daughters. Anyway, uh, when the war broke out, David Bullock Harris, who had been trained at West Point and had been one of the engineers of the Kanawha Canal in Richmond, uh, served as an engineer under General Beauregard and um, was very involved in a number of major fortifications along the coast and on island number 10. Anyway, uh, David died of malaria in 1864, and he left Elizabeth and the eight, nine children. I think one had died by then. And so what makes the story interesting is that uh, near the very end of the war, when General Sheridan came through this part of Virginia, uh, he raided uh, the Harris had a tobacco factory. 
and he rated it, and he took about uh, probably it's hard to say exactly, but somewhere probably between one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars of the Harris's tobacco that was there and destroyed the factory. So after the war, immediately after the war, Mrs. Harris, who needed money quite badly to uh, raise her family, she um, she sued the federal government, claiming that she had been a British subject, that she had always been a British subject, and of course her husband had been dead by the time Sheridan came through, and so she was suing as a, a basically a foreign national whose property had been confiscated. So this suit went on for many, many years. Uh, eventually, uh, by the 1872, she lost the suit. Uh, uh, other, there were other suits like this going on, uh, where British subjects or other people who were interfered because of by the blockade in most cases um, were making claims against the British government and Americans who were making claims against the British government back and forth. Anyway, um, but Miss Harris persisted on this for many, many years. Uh, indeed, she the rest of her life was taken up largely trying to get compensation. She literally went to the extent of writing the British Prime Minister uh, in the 1880s, Lord Salisbury, uh, to try to get him to recognize her uh, directly as a British subject so she would have a better case to make against the uh, United States government. Uh, but uh, the, the, the prime minister never took the bait, if you will. And uh, it's just a fascinating topic because it, it makes us wonder, again, about these foreigners who were living uh, in the South when the war began, who did not conceive of themselves, and she clearly did not as a southerner. She gave no support to the Confederate government directly. Um, indeed, General Beauregard, who met her, wrote a letter on her behalf to the United States saying, when I met her during the war, she clearly talked as if she was a British subject and not, a, not, a, not simply not an American, but not a Confederate either. And uh, so it raises lots of interesting legal questions about uh, the status of people who are, in a sense, behind the lines, uh, particularly when they're interfered with uh, by the military. It, it does. I mean, the 14th Amendment later at least helps to define mm-hmm. citizenship, but, but it doesn't help for somebody in this Well, era. it doesn't help for a nation that doesn't exist anymore either. That's right. <laughs> us, uh, with something to wonder about there. Right. Well, Bob, we are unfortunately out of time. Well, I enjoyed it very much. I have Appreciate to tell you, it, it was cathartic for me to be able to talk to you in the public about Dr. Donald. Well, I'm glad for that. I, I felt the same way, and uh, I hope listeners uh, uh, tolerate and, and, and put up with our reminiscing of our old mentor. Uh, and read his but, books. <laughs> and the best way, exactly, go out and read his books. Uh, you'll all benefit. Uh, so, Bob, thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 